If you have a child that suffers from severe allergies, you know that life can be stressful and exciting, especially if those allergies are some type of food allergies like milk and nuts and and wheat. And the reason it's so stressful is because once you find out about the allergy, you quickly learn that that basically everything in the universe is made up of whatever that is that your kid's allergic to, right? And, uh, and it's also stressful because you really just don't have a whole lot of control. You're not always in control. And the fact that sometimes your child's not with you, you can't monitor what it is that they're eating. Even when you're with them, sometimes they're serving food that you're not really completely sure uh, what's, what's in there. So it can be stressful. And I think that this is the type of stress that my uh, wife was, uh, was carrying uh, by herself, I think at the time, uh, when, when, when we discovered that our son had a severe allergy to tree nuts. And I remember uh, my son was very, very young and we were gonna take him out just for, I think it was a day or two. I was gonna have him all by myself and I think Larissa was a little bit nervous about it and uh, I was too, to be honest. And, and she, said, she, said, uh, she said to me, she goes, now listen, you just have to be very, very careful about whatever it is that he eats. And he goes, if he has an allergic reaction, here's what I want you to do. She hands me a bottle of Benadryl. And she hands it to me and she goes, if, if, if you see starting to, his eyes are watering and he begins to itch or his, his throat sounds kind of scratchy, then he's probably having some kind of allergic reaction to his food. Go ahead and give him some of this. If that doesn't work, then use this EpiPen on him. If, if, if he's not breathing well, use the EpiPen. Well, I gotta be honest with you. Uh, I knew what Benadryl is. I had no idea what an EpiPen was. And so she handed it to me and I go, what do I do? What is this? What do I do with it? And she goes, oh, it's a needle. And she goes, if something happens, if he's having a hard time breathing, you just take the top off, reveal the needle, and then you shove it into the side of his thigh and you hold it there for like eight to 10 seconds. Well, I gotta tell you, I'm not a real big fan of needles to begin with for myself. In fact, I I went to the doctors the other day, they were doing some blood work and I'm fine as long as I don't look at the needle. I look at the needle, it's over, I'm dizzy, I I don't feel well, so I completely turn and people are like, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay, just go ahead and do whatever you gotta do over there as long as I don't see it. That's when it happens to me, never mind taking a needle and harpooning it into the leg of my son, right? And so I, I, I just told her, I said, hey, listen, just give me the Benadryl, we'll be fine. And she turns, and so moms and their instincts understand dad is struggling with confidence. My son is now in peril because of that lack of confidence. I've got to straighten this out. So she grabs my arms and she looks at me and she just basically says, you can do this. You have to do this. Neither he nor you are going to like it, but this might be his last hope of living. Now, thinking about the people in the northern kingdom of Israel, they were in bad shape. They were in bad health. In fact, they knew that they were soon going to die. God had warned them over and over again to repent, but they weren't listening. They weren't picking up on the warnings. They weren't picking up on these signals. They just continued in their sin. Even Amos tried many different ways to try to get their attention, but to no avail. So now God is going to judge them by allowing the Assyrian army to come in and their own country to be able to defeat them, to take them off into exile, and every last one of them are eventually going to perish. They are going to die. But God in his grace and his mercy, though they are going to die physically, wants them to live spiritually. So what he does is he gives one last hope, one last hope hope for them to listen to. So here's what happens in chapter five. Amos the prophet drops the Benadryl. He picks up the EpiPen. 
And he basically comes to the northern kingdom and says, you're not gonna like this, but this is your only hope to live. So what he does is he gives three commands and he tells them, if you wanna live and not die, you must do these three things. And so this morning, we're gonna look at those three commands. The first thing he commands them to do is to embrace fellowship, not religion. To embrace fellowship and not religion. Notice, if you will, in verse one, chapter five and verse one, he says, Amos spoke saying, hear the word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. This is the third time that Amos has used this phrase, the phrase, hear the word in the last three chapters. And the reason he's doing it is because he wants to remind the audience that he's not speaking his own words and ideas. These are the very words of God. That's what a preacher is supposed to do, by the way. He's not supposed to get up and talk about his own speculations and his own ideas and his own opinions. He is called by God to lay bare the word of God, to deliver, not even to talk about it, but to actually deliver God's word to the people. And so that's what Amos is is faithful to do here. But man, he really takes a really unique way in which he decides to preach. What he does, if you look at the word lamentations there, what he's actually doing is he is coming and he's actually delivering his message in a funeral dirge. A funeral dirge is is a song or a hymn that would be sung during a funeral. So imagine me coming and preaching this morning by singing this very depressing song, all right? It would be bad if I sang, it would be depressing, okay? And so this is how he delivers his message. And so imagine for a moment being the people hearing this from the Northern Kingdom, he's from the South. They don't like him to begin with. And remember, they've already most likely named him burden bearer is what the name Amos means. And now he comes singing and he's singing a funeral dirge. And immediately they're gonna begin to wonder who died. And Amos immediately responds, you did, you died. And the people would have laughed it off and they would have said, what do you mean that we died? We've never been more alive. Things are going swimmingly. In fact, our life has never been better. We're making more money than we've ever made. This is what's happening with the people in the northern kingdom. He says, we have a national peace that we've never experienced like this since the time of David and from the time of Solomon. He goes, and on top of that, the people are really, really religious. Religion has never been more popular. What do you mean that we're dead? Surely we're alive. And he says, and he turns to them in essence, and he lets them know, it's your very religion that is causing you your death. We see that in verse two. He says, fall no more to rise is the virgin Israel. The key there is the word virgin, virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. So understand this. The Jewish people were all about weddings and funerals, okay? They did them up big time. So in in a funeral, what they would often do is they would actually hire professional mourners who would mourn for days and even weeks out of time, just these hysterical crying because they wanted to show the whole world how much they were grieving over the loss of their particular loved one. But they would also hire singers that would come and even people who would write songs for that particular person's funeral. And as they were taking the casket and they were taking them to go and to be buried at that point, they would begin to sing this funeral dirge. And so what's so sad here is this, at this particular point, is he is saying to them that he's, he's calling out, he's saying that Israel is, in the song, that Israel is like this virgin girl who died in the midst of battle in her own backyard, in her own land. Now, that would be sad enough, would it not? A young virgin girl dying in the midst of battle. But the key there is the word virgin. 
The reason that that would have been even more sad to them is because this young girl had never and would never enjoy the intimacy that is experienced within the marriage relationship. Never would she experience the unique blessing of companionship and intimacy that is unique between a husband and wife. No other relationship is like this one, and she would never experience it. Now, I think I understand how they feel. When I was a teenager, I was growing up in the 80s. That tells my age a little bit. Some of you are like, you're so young. And some of you are like, dude, you're so old, right? And I'm like right in that in between, that sweet spot, I like to call it. And so uh, nobody respects me above me and nobody cares for me below me. And so that's, that's the part when you're 46. And so, uh, and, and so in the 80s, in the 80s um, if, you, if you were alive in the 80s and you went to church, all you heard about was the second coming of God. All right, that, that was it. That was 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 88. And, and that's all you learned. And I remember sitting in a Bible study and a man told me, he says, you know what? He goes, he goes the return of God is imminent. And he explained that what that means about the imminent return of God means nothing else has to happen before he returns again. No more prophecy has to happen. He can come back at any moment. And the people in the room begin to get so excited. And they were like, he can come back, you mean even right now? Yeah, he could even come right now. Well, let's pray that Christ would come. Let's pray he comes now. And they're praying out loud, God, you come, you come. And I got my eyes closed in the corner going, no, God, don't come, don't come, don't come. Don't come, no, right now, God. Listen, the reason that these people are praying is because they already had the opportunity to meet their wives and get married and then to be able to have children. I haven't had the opportunity. I need to meet Mrs. Kwiatkowski before I die. And I remember feeling so incredibly guilty ever to tell anybody that you, you look spiritual. You know you were the same way. There's teenagers even here now that are sitting there going, yeah, it's great. We, we want God to come, but hey, can you wait for a minute, you know, waiting to meet that person? And so why? Because and I remember feeling so guilty, but I remember and I remind as we read through the word of God, this is really just a desire that God places within our heart. There is a yearning to be in that type of unique, intimate relationship that is unlike anything else. Here's his song, the point of the song. He's saying the sadness of the death of where you're being hauled off and you're going to die is the fact that you are like that virgin girl in the sense that you have never and you will never experience the intimacy of a relationship with me because all you ever did was cling on to your dead religion. You, you, you're going through and you're doing all these spiritual things. You're, you're going to these places of worship and you're, and you're praying prayers and you're giving and all about religious activity. But that makes up, that doesn't make up a relationship with God. You have religion, but you don't have a relationship. Matthew chapter seven, verse 22 is one of the most haunting verses in all of scripture, is it not? When he says, on that day, Jesus is speaking, on that day, he says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did you not prophesy in my name and cast out demons in my name and do many mighty works in, my, in your name? And he says, and then I will declare them, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Isn't that, that's an incredibly fearful passage to me. This, is, this would be the response or the, the type of idea that Amos is trying to get across to them. Uh, in, in, in the book of Matthew, these people are calling on the day of judgment. God, we were really religious. We did all kinds of things. We had good attendance. We had our kids in church. We were a part of a small group. We did all kinds of religious activity. And what he's saying is, I know, but there was no religion. There was no relationship, no living relationship between you and I. You were just ultimately going through the motions. There was nothing more to it. You know, I wonder when I think of this, is this isn't why I see so many professing believers without even a glimmer of joy in their life. 
week to week coming, barely singing, barely thinking on, hearing the things of God emotionally, just nothing there. You can preach about the height of God's glory and the depth of our depravity and the goodness of his grace and his mercy that we show and just kind of flatline, but yet there's some of the most most confidently attending active people and religious people imaginable. They're going about all of this, but the problem is they're missing the most important thing, and that is a relationship. They actually want to be able to come and hear God speak and want to be able to communicate with him. And so they're doing all of this and just none of that there. It's kind of like the Martha syndrome. You remember uh, in Martha, in, in, in the word of God, we, we see there that he, Jesus is, is, is with his disciples. And as he's with his disciples, um, Mary and Martha are there and Martha is just working her fingers to, to the bone, right? And, and, and Mary is, is slouching at the feet of Jesus, doing nothing, just sitting down there listening to Jesus. And Martha gets upset, which, by the way, we all do, right? It's like at home, and you have, like, all your whole family, and you're vacuuming and go, why? Um, but anyway, but you do feel that way. Why aren't you people working with me? Why am I the only one doing it? Martha feels the same thing, and she goes to Jesus, and she complains, and she says, Mary's not doing anything. She's not helping me. Jesus' words, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which means Mary has chosen that which is necessary, which will not be taken away. What did she choose? A relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm just gonna let you know, I'm gonna save time and this will help free up some more space. All right, this is, this is one of those messages, all right? This is one of those messages that all of a sudden we're, like, we're getting a little tight. Let's go ahead and get some people out. Uh, here, 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 here's the message. I just wanna let you know, if you came here and you're coming to church and all it is is religion to you, checking off a bunch of boxes, thinking that this is what gets you into God and the right thing, you're wasting your time. Go hunt somewhere. Go shop somewhere. Sleep in. Do not do what you're doing this morning. This is an incredible waste of time apart from a life-giving, full, joyous relationship with the Savior, Jesus Christ. So what does the word of God tell us? It tells us here that you need to embrace a relationship, not a religion. Number two, seek God, not his stuff. Seek God, not his stuff. Look at verse four. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel and, and, and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. It's obvious to God that the people that are showing up for worship are not about him, they're all about themselves. They're not here to find out, to learn about him and to glorify him. Uh, where they're, instead, they are showing up simply for the benefits that they believe that he can provide. He says, do not, notice what he says. He says, he says, seek me and live. He says, do not seek Bethel. He mentions three cities there, two of which we talked last week, uh, Bethel and Gilgal. Remember that those, were, those had become religious sites for the Jewish people at this time. They were sites that their forefathers, that God had done something really impressive and really blessed them at these particular sites. Now they're going to worship and taking pilgrimages, these spiritual uh, uh, um, trips, if you will, to these holy places under the guise of worshiping God. But what God understands is they're not going to worship God. They're going because they want something from God. 
They could really care less about him. They just want the blessings that they think they could ultimately give. So to them, there's something magical about these places, very similar to churches. Things begin to fall apart. Maybe if we just get to church, there's something that God would do just by us ultimately being there. And so what he's trying to let him know is he says, you know, it doesn't doesn't work that way. This isn't what we're supposed to be doing. Let's be honest. We cherish the blessings of God, amen? We need the blessings of God, amen? And we even pray for them and we enjoy them, yes? uh, We're not suggesting that. What we are suggesting is there has to be one thing that is primary and one thing that is secondary. And what is primary is not the seeking of the blessings in and of themselves, but seeking the God of those blessings. Those blessings don't come from a direct pursuit. Those blessings come from a byproduct of a living right relationship with Jesus Christ. So we're reminded in Matthew chapter six, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You know what's stunning to me here is not the fact that the people are seeking the stuff of God rather than God himself. I mean, that's shocking, but it's not overly shocking. We see it happen all the time. What is a little bit more disturbing is the fact that God recognizes it. He knows the difference. He knows the difference when the people are there for him and when they're not there for them, they're just simply using him. And we see it, and Jesus knows this in John chapter six. And in fact, in fact God, God, God even knows this morning why we're here. We'll get to that in just a moment. But in John chapter six, notice Jesus' ability, or excuse me, in John chapter six, right after Jesus um, multiplies the fish and the loaves and feeds over 5,000 people, probably up to 15,000 people with the fish and the loaves, uh, this large group of people, massive humanity, continues to follow Jesus. Now, in our day, that's called awesome church, right? That's a successful church. Lots of people following. But what does he do? Jesus isn't impressed with any of this. He's not impressed with the masses because he understands their heart. And he says in chapter, in John chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs. Let me explain this. The Jewish people required a sign to believe. They would require some kind of miracle, some type of prophecy to prove that whoever it was who was prophesying was actually from God. So they required a sign. So Jesus shows up, and what does he do? Gives them a whole plethora of signs. Here's your sign, he says. And he gives them all to them. And he says, but you're not following me because the signs have convinced you that I'm Lord and Savior, and you're not following me because you love me and you want to submit to me. He says, here's why you're following me. He says, because you ate your fill of the loaves. He says, you're following me not in submission to me because I'm your Savior. You're following me because you think I'm a bread dispenser. <laughs> That's what you think. You think I'm just, I'm here, just, here here's, here's your bread. Here's more bread. You're following me. You just want more of the stuff. And so Jesus understands this, and he recognizes this. And did you know that Jesus recognizes with us why we're here this morning? He knows very well why we're here. Now, here's what I would suggest. I don't want you to be confused if you're sitting there going, man, my, you know, look, I love Jesus, but my marriage is falling apart. I need him to move. I'm not suggesting that's bad. I'm not suggesting if you know Jesus and, and you're here and, and you're sitting there going, man, I love Jesus, but I need, I, I need a job. And and, and I'm coming to God asking for him for the job. I don't think any of that is wrong. The wrong aspect is, look, I could care less about God other than the times that I really want something from him. That's the problem. 
How do we make a distinction between the two? Let me give you a quick illustration by Ray Comfort uh, in one of the books that I read through by him. Uh, Ray Comfort says, imagine if you were on a plane and some people are like, oh, that sounds so good right now. And you were on a plane and all of a sudden a flight attendant comes up to you and she says, here, this is a parachute for you and this is gonna make your flight even better. It's gonna make it more comfortable for you. And you look at it and you look at this big bulky thing and you're like, how is putting this on going to make my flight more comfortable? And you're really not sure about this whole thing, but you decide to give it a chance. So you go ahead and you put this big bulky um, parachute on and a couple minutes later, the people in front of you are starting to snicker and you realize they're snickering at you because you look dumb. And then all of a sudden your back begins to hurt and your neck begins to hurt and your shoulders begin to hurt because you've got this big parachute on your back and you're beginning to wonder how in the world is this thing supposed to make my flight better? And right when you're thinking about taking it off, all of a sudden another flight attendant walking down the aisle with a big pot of hot coffee bumps into the parachute that's supposed to help your flight be more comfortable and pours that whole thing of coffee into your lap. What do you do? Well, you take that thing off because it did nothing that it ultimately promised that it was going to do. Second scenario, you're on the plane and a woman comes up to you and she says, listen, I've got insider information and that is that this plane doesn't have enough gas to get to our destination. At some point, it's gonna run out. We're gonna die. You're gonna have to jump here. You don't think a second, but to grab hold of that with all of your might, right? You take it, you put it on, you strap it on. People are making fun of you. Does it bother you? Yeah, a little bit, but do you take it off? No. All of a sudden, your back begins to hurt. Your neck begins to hurt. Do you take it off? No. A lady comes down the aisle with a big pot of, uh, of boiling hot coffee. She runs into you, into the, back, into the, the parachute. It's, it causes her to pour coffee on, on, on your lap. Do you like that? Absolutely not. But do you take off the parachute? No. Because you never took on the parachute to make your flight more comfortable. You took it on because you were assured that there was going to be a jump that was going to come. In the same way for us as believers in Jesus Christ, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're not coming to him to try to get a better life in the here and now. We come to him in faith because we know that there is an ultimate jump that is going to come. That we know that whatever happens here is inconsequential to what one day will ultimately happen in our faith in Christ. So oftentimes when we sit there and the way that you could determine, am I pursuing him or not, is do you only pursue him when you're wanting something from him? And do you stop pursuing him when you don't get what you want? I can't tell you how many husbands have come to me and they've messed up in their marriages and you wanna, you wanna, you wanna minister to them and you wanna help them and you wanna see that marriage restored. And I tell the guys straight up, I tell them this, I go, it's gonna be very hard and it's gonna take some time to determine whether you're really sincere or not. And he goes, what do you mean? And I go, well, you seem sincere from the outside. And I said, but I don't know if you're trying to use God right now by coming back to the church to get your marriage back or if you're coming back primarily because you realize that you failed God and you're in sin against God and you were praying by his mercy that he will bring your family back. Time will ultimately he says here to the people, he says, if you wanna live, you need to seek God and not his stuff. If you wanna live, you have to embrace a relationship, not religion. And third, you have to exchange rhetoric for action. Rhetoric for action. By rhetoric, I just mean lots of speech, all right? Speech didn't sound right. Exchange speech for action. Actually, it didn't sound too bad. Maybe I'll use that in the second one. But exchange rhetoric for action. 
there's no way that Amos, well, there's a possibility Amos understands that the people may not know what it means when he says that you need to seek God. I think that might even be a problem for us today. Hey, seek after God. Okay, what does that mean? That seems to be so abstract. So what he knows he has to do to help the people is he has to go from the theological and he has to work to the practical. That's what we do almost every week. What is the biblical principle? What is the theology? What does that mean to us? And what does it call us to be able to do? So this is what he begins to do. Look at verse eight for a moment. First, he begins to remind them of who God is and remind them of how powerful he is. He says, he who made the the, the Pleiades in in Orion, he's talking about the constellations and he turns the deep darkness into, into the morning and he darkens the day into night. He calls for the waters of the sea and he pours them out on the surface of the earth. Here's the idea. This is how big and powerful God is. He says, it's this God who brings judgment upon sinners, verse nine. Notice, he says, who makes destruction fall forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. So here's this powerful God. He is going to judge. Here's how he's going to judge sinners. Guess what? You are sinners, he tells them here in verse in, in this chapter. And notice the sins in verses 12 through 13. Just for time's sake, let me sum this up for you. In 10 through 13, he, 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 he describes in those verses that the people were accepting bribes. They, were char- they charged the poor with exorbitant high rent. They lived in luxuries as the poor suffer- starved and all while being arrogantly, here's the key, arrogantly self-confident that God was with them. Let me, let me pull it out for you. Draw it out for you a little bit more. Look at verse 14. In verse 14, he says, seek good and not evil that you may live and so that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. Now note this last part. As you have said, here's what's going on. They are professing every day they believe that they're the people of God, that God is with them every single day. He says, but your actions is showing something completely different. You're saying that, you, that God is for you, but you are demonstrating that he is obviously not because you're doing the very things that he ultimately hates. What he's saying is, why don't you exchange all your words because your words mean nothing for actions that actually demonstrate that you are, that God is actually for you. Instead, what he asks, he actually asks this. He's basically saying, hey, look, I hear that you say that, you are, you, that, that God is for you, but the real question is, are you for God? And the only way to be able to determine that is what are you doing? Are you living in obedience to God? Not perfection, but pursuing the obedience of God. These folks weren't. So here's what they're doing. It's almost as though they believe in the power of positive thinking that if they just say it enough, it's true. It's much like people that we hear today. You'll run into people all the time who say that they're a Christian. And when you begin to try to share the gospel with them, you're sitting there going, yeah, but their their lifestyle, the fruit isn't matching up to what a a true believer in Jesus Christ is supposed to look like, right? I mean, you're not trying to judge, it's fruit inspection. And then you're trying to lead them in the gospel. And you sit there and go, well, brother, you're living in this continuous sin. You're not seeking God. You're not a part of a church. You're not in the word. You're You're not loving the things of God. You're not doing any of these things. And they're like, yeah. And then they turn and what do they say? But I know that I know that I know that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. You know what the bottom line is? You can say whatever you want as many times as you want, but it doesn't necessarily make it true. One illustration that I heard from one of the guys, one of the commentaries that I used, T.J. Betts, he tells us a little illustration. You may not get all of this, but I think you get part of it. He says that there were three pastors in a boat. You always struggle with an illustration that has three pastors in a boat. I call that perpetual boredom and frustration, three pastors in a boat. 
And so the illustration goes that it, 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 the, the boat turns over and they all three die. You know how these jokes go, right? Personally, I think they, they were frustrated and they beat each other up. But, but really what happens, it, it, it topsides. They, they all, their lives are, 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 are taken. They wake up and they realize that they're not in heaven. Now, one of these men is a Calvinist. One man is an Arminian. And one man is a word faith guy that believes in the power of, uh, the power of words and claiming, claiming things. And so the Calvinist says, wow, I really thought I was born again. I guess I wasn't. I was never born again. The Arminian says, I, I know that I had salvation. I must have lost it somehow. And, and the word faith guy, the power of positive speaking says, closes his eyes, plugs his ears and says, I'm not here. It's not hot. All right. The point of that is, it takes a moment. I, I had a feeling it was gonna take a moment. And now I realize that's a stupid joke. But, but the point is, listen, you might be here today and you might look back on all of this stuff and say, I know that I'm born again because I have religion. I walked an aisle, I prayed a prayer. It's a part of a youth group. I was a part of this. I'm a part of this, this function. I'm part of all these other things. That religion will not save you. You may sit back and you may sit there and go, yeah, but I'm here and I have a lot of needs and God's helped me with a lot of things. You seeking God's stuff is not ultimately going to save you. You may sit here and you go, yeah, but I I promise you, I know that I am born again. Unless you have been regenerated, let me explain. Unless there has been a change in your life so that you are no longer pursuing the things of the world and living like the world, there's no evidence that there is salvation. You're not saved by following. You're not saved by doing those good works. It's evidence that you have truly been born again. Regeneration is that when God saves you, he radically changes you from the inside out. He gives you a new hunger. He gives you new desires. He gives you a new heart. He gives you a new heart, which now loves the things of God and hates the things that God hates And not only does he give you new desire, but he places his Holy Spirit inside of you that now gives you the power to do the very right things. This group of people were saying, we know that God is for us, but they were not for God demonstrated in the way that they were living. So what is it? Here's the bottom line. This might be the last call for you. Look, you know, you who know me, you know I'm not a manipulative guy or else I'd break out some kind of story about kids in camp and them going off, you know, some river's end somewhere, right? I don't believe in that, but I do believe that the word of God is trying to shock us. The lion is roaring. That's the overarching idea of this. Sometimes we become so complacent where we are in a relationship, in our non-relationship, we think everything is okay, and the lion has got to roar. That's exactly what's happening in this passage, to get our attention and let us know there is something not right. And he's giving us this one last warning. And the problem with last warnings is we never know they're the last warning. That's the problem with those. It's the problem with everything, with a person who walks out and they die during the day. They don't know that that's the last bowl of oatmeal they're gonna have. They don't know it's the last time that they're gonna hug their kids or they're gonna kiss their wife. They don't know that. But you know what? We never know. These people would never know when it was their last opportunity to repent and place their faith in the person of Jesus Christ. So here's what I would call, last last call, embrace relationship, not religion, seek God, not his stuff, exchange rhetoric for his action. 
If you will repent, place your faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. Look, all of us are worthy of the judgment of God. There's not a person of here who's not. Big sins, little sin, all is deserving of the wrath of God. But God must judge us, but in his justice, he is also loving, which is demonstrated that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He sent his own son on the cross to die for you. If you will repent from that sin and call out to him and say, save me, I'm turning to you, I'm giving my life to you. Save me, Jesus. He'll do it. He'll do it. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning and I thank